Vladimir Putin expected to conquer Ukraine in three days, but the brutal and bloody war he launched against his neighbor has dragged on for a year. The factors that gave rise to this war are, I think, still widely misunderstood. How or when it will end remains unclear, so there is much to discuss. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased to have with us three FDD experts for that conversation. Mark Montgomery serves as Senior Director of FDD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, countering cyber threats that seek to diminish America's national security. Mark also directs CSC 2.0. That's an FDD initiative that works to implement the recommendations of the congressionally mandated Cyberspace Solarium Commission, where he was executive director. Mark previously served as policy director for the Senate Armed Services Committee under the leadership of Senator John McCain. Before that, Mark served for 32 years in the U.S. Navy, retiring as a rear admiral in 2017. Brad Bowman is senior director of FDD Center on Military and Political Power, focusing on U.S. defense strategy and policy. Brad spent nearly nine years as a national security and defense advisor in the U.S. Senate. Prior to that, he served more than 15 years in active duty in the U.S. Army. He also was an assistant professor at West Point, teaching foreign policy and grand strategy. John Hardy serves as deputy director of FDD's Russia program, focusing on Russian foreign and security policy, U.S. policy toward Russia and the post-Soviet space. John holds an M.A. in security studies from the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. So thanks to all three of you for the work you've been doing on this portfolio. Um, I'm going to start, actually, take a moderator's prerogative, but I'm going to start by, I, I want to peek a little bit into Putin's head, if you will. And as you guys know, I'm a, at least a longtime Russia watcher. I first visited Russia more than half a century ago, in 1969. I returned in 1972 as one of a very small coterie of undergraduate exchange students, and I later did a few stints reporting from there. So I've been to I've been to Siberia, I've been to Georgia, Armenia, Estonia, Latvia, Kazakhstan, and other parts of of the empire of what Putin would call Ruski Mir, which means the Russian world. And more recently, I was an election official. Uh, I'm sorry, an official election observer in Ukraine. That was in 2019. And I also visited Ukraine as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Russia would not allow you, sir, to come and enter and do work there. Okay, enough about me. Let's talk Putinology. First of all, he is somebody who is quite familiar with Russian history. And I'm going to argue, I've argued this for years, he sees himself as Tsar Vladimir. And by the way, Tsar means emperor. It's come, it actually comes from the word Caesar. Caesar. In good times, it's the mission of a Tsar to expand the empire. In bad times, like now, it's the mission of a Tsar to restore the empire. Putin particularly admires and wants to emulate Peter the Great, who in the 17th century began the expansion of the Tsardom into a larger empire, one moving west as well as east. And he also looks to Ivan III, Ivan the Great, the 15th century grand prince known as the Gatherer of the Russian lands. Think of that, gatherer of the Russian lands. And just so you know, Ivan the Terrible was Ivan the Fourth, not Ivan the Third. He could be compared to Ivan the Terrible too, but we'll leave that. Now, one more note on this, again, for context. The proper term for a czar is czar of all the Russias, Tsar of Rossi. In pursuit of that mission to be czar of all the Russias, 
He invaded Georgia in 2008 when Bush was president. That was the first European war of the 21st century. And he sliced off two provinces, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. He sees Georgia as part of the Russian Empire. And after he did that in Georgia, what happened? Well, the international community barely slapped his wrist. Then it was very important next that he, in 2014, he moved on to Ukraine. Again, if you're talking about all the Russias, you mean Russia, you mean Belarus, which is white Russia, literally, and Ukraine, which means Russian frontier, Russian outlands. That's essentially what the word means. So then 2014, he goes in and he annexes Crimea and he invades and begins an insurgency in Donbass in the, this eastern region of Ukraine next to Russia. Now, um, in 2008, Bush was president, Bush 41, 2014, Obama was was president. And what was the response from the international community, the annexation of Crimea and the insurgency in Donbass? Well, very little. You may recall John Kerry's response. He said, you just don't in the 21st century behave in 19th century fashion by invading another country on completely trumped up pretext. It is serious in terms of sort of the modern manner with which nations are going to resolve problems. I'm sure Putin was devastated by those words. In 2021, Putin saw Biden capitulate to the Taliban in Afghanistan. Within about a month, he was planning his invasion of Ukraine. I'm convinced what Biden, what, what Putin saw in Afghanistan was a factor. It wasn't the only factor. Again, he's not getting any younger, and he's thinking of his legacy. Uh, Putin is notorious for asking Russian historians how he'll be judged 100 years uh, hence. And understand, this is a very important point people don't get. Russia has always been an empire, not a nation state. They never bought into the whole Westphalian idea. The Russian Empire and its successor, the Soviet Empire, also included Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. And there are the Caucasian lands, some of them you've heard love, like Chechnya, maybe Dagestan, others you haven't. And then there are the, this vast North, Central Asian and Asian territories that Russia conquered all the way to Vladivostok on the Sea of Japan. Now, Vladivostok means ruler of the East, Vladivostok, Vlad, same as in Vladimir and his name, Vlad, ruler, Vostok, East. And Vladivostok was Chinese before it was annexed by Russia. The Russian Empire extends further, including Sakhalin Island, which was once Japanese, and the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is actually east of Japan. And Russian settlers, you may recall, went all the way into Alaska and south into California. So the partially restored Russia, uh, Russian Empire now includes de facto Belarus, which is really a vassal state under the dictator Lukashenko. And I'd call Armenia a vassal state, too. Also on Putin's mind, none of this is monocausal, also on his mind, a free and democratic alternative to Russia next door to Russia, which is what Ukraine has been becoming. That's not something he found easy to tolerate. And then there was this. Russia has a population of only about 140 million today, and it's in a kind of demographic death spiral, adding 40 million Ukrainians who are now identified as Russian. And adding a global breadbasket, because agriculturally, as you now know, Ukraine is very powerful. That would be useful to him. Finally, and this is the end of my rant, don't discount the extent to which Putin and other Russians are absolutely offended 
that Ukrainians don't want to identify as Russians, that they want to identify as Europeans. All right, guys, let's start with the with the news. Biden paid a visit to Kiev. Um, and the only previous presidents to travel through or stay in a combat zone while in office, I think, were FDR, Lincoln, and Madison. Uh, Biden said the U.S. would back Ukraine as long as it takes, and that Putin was dead wrong to think he could outlast Ukraine and Western allies. Um, Brad, how significant is it that he did this? Uh, thanks, Cliff. It's a real pleasure to join you and Mark and John, and, and uh, thanks for the question. I think uh, the fact that President Biden, Biden went is very significant. I, I think it was important that he go. Uh, other European leaders had already gone to Kiev. Um, and I think uh, given America's leadership role in general and also our leadership role in helping Ukraine, it was important that he go. Uh, it caused, as John Hardy and you probably observed real well, it caused a lot of angst in Russia uh, because it stole some of Putin's uh, his, uh, thunder uh, before the anniversary. Um, he announced a new uh, a new uh, 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 tranche of security assistance of about four hundred sixty million dollars while there, um, and and he he made a very clear political commitment that uh, we're going to help Ukraine for as long as it takes. And uh, Vice President uh, Harris echoed similar themes at the Munich Security Conference a day or two prior, and I think that's significant because it, you know in the military we have this idea of center of gravity. It's the one thing in your adversary. That you need to attack and defeat to be to defeat your adversary, and it's the one thing on your side that you need to protect to avoid defeat. And at risk of oversimplifying, I feel that a key center of gravity in this conflict is, is American public opinion. Vladimir Putin knows that if he can undermine political support for American assistance to Ukraine, uh, that that could over time uh, weaken Ukraine. Europeans will follow that lead, uh, and that would enable that would make a Russian uh, victory or um, a, a medium amount of success there more likely. And so, when you have American political leaders making strong political statements like that and trying to pronounce and inform American public opinion in such a symbolic place as Kiev, I think that's a significant thing worth noting. And um, Mark, let me go to you. Another, also in the news, Putin. Gave a state of the nation speech, state of the empire speech, to the federal assembly, and he said, "You know what? It was the West that started the war in Ukraine." Um, what's your response to that? Did, did uh, pretty hard for anybody to believe that, but maybe he does. First, I want to say I agree completely with um, with Brad on his assessment of the visit to Ukraine. I'd, I'd say, by the way, the visit to Poland equally important. Poland is this really critical ally. They're the most vulnerable to where we're doing the, a lot of our training and certainly the vast, vast, vast majority of logistics flowing through Poland, including our president, now flowing through Poland to uh, to get to Ukraine. And I love that he's visiting there. Um, and the fact that he went to Ukraine first is, was a, a good move. So I think the president deserves a lot of credit. Rough, rough weekend for Kamala Harris, who gives a big uh, foreign policy speech in Munich on Friday. And the president pretty much sucks all the air out of the room on Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But still, the president did the right thing, and it was fantastic. You know, on to Putin. <clears throat> yeah, obviously, I mean, that's just a crock, right? The uh, we, we all understand who caused this war. Now, I will say the, the U.S. and the West contributed to Putin's misunderstanding of how we would respond. You know, it, 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 I, the 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 responsibility for all actions that occurred, all harm that happens is on Vladimir Putin and 
his uh, and his uh, national command authority that executes this unlawful war in, in Ukraine. But we failed, and it starts in 2008 with with President Bush's response to Georgia, goes uh, the catastrophic Russia reset policy for four years uh, through 2012, um, a failure to um, to deal with Russia properly at se- sequential NATO conferences and show a strong deterrent effort from uh, 2012 to 2014 led to Crimea, a weak response to Crimea in terms of support to Ukraine. The response to Crimea is interesting. It's bifurcated. We did a great job supporting NATO. We did something called the European Deterrence Initiative, poured $24 billion of standalone money into priorities identified by the European Command Commander, including about $14 billion worth of tracked and wheeled vehicles and other equipment and ammunition spread all throughout Europe in a way that we could rapidly fall in it to support the Baltics and Poland. But when it came to Ukraine, uh, you know, President Obama dithered for two years on the issue of whether he should provide um, uh, kinetic uh, equipment to Ukraine. So we didn't provide javelins. We provided helmets and, and Kevlar, you know, the kind of stuff we made fun of Germany about last March. And then it followed up by, um, you know, President Trump agreeing to give kinetic equipment then getting tied up with issues around domestic Ukrainian and U.S. politics and allowing it to to infiltrate, color, and weaken our Ukrainian uh, response. So we did very little then. And in fact, the Biden administration in 2021, with all the information it had about impending Russian movements, the the troops left over from Zapad exercises, you know, really did weak tea, about four to $600 million worth worth of assistance over about a year, uh, 14 months, so you add all that up, and that was a strong signal of, you know, you know, it was a, as far as Putin was concerned, that was a green light. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean we caused it? No, that means that we failed to deter it. And 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 to me, this was an absolute failure in deterrence from 2008 to 2022. Right. He, I, I think that's absolutely right. He, he, right. He, he, he saw us encouraging him. We, he saw us as weak. He didn't think there'd be any serious pushback. John, Putin also just said that he was going to suspend participation in New START, which is the last major nuclear arms control agreement Russia has with the U.S. Is that significant? And if so, why? Thanks, Cliff. And thanks. It's great to join all of you. I, I do think it is significant. I think this is an escalation of what Russia has been doing with New START um, since earlier in the war. Um, if you recall, uh, both sides had had agreed to suspend inspections uh, due to COVID, but uh, when the U.S. wanted to resume them, uh, Moscow said no, and you know they pointed to uh, technical issues regarding uh, stemming from the U.S. sanctions, uh, basically preventing Russian inspectors from traveling to the U.S. So we said, okay, you know, we'll take that at face value and, and try to work this out on a technical level. Russia stonewalled, and it, it increasingly became clear that. Um, uh, Putin really just wanted the issue, right? So he's holding um, U.S. desire for strategic stability, for arms control with Russia hostage um, as leverage vis-a-vis the West uh, on Ukraine. And I think the the latest announcement about the suspension of implementation of the treaty um, is an escalation of that. Um, Hopefully, um, Russia will will continue to adhere to the treaty's limits while uh, ceasing, um, you know, uh, notifications and that sort of uh, thing. But ultimately, we're just going to have to use a national technical means to to you know, see what Russia is doing on the nuclear file. Uh, and, and Mark, just one quick question on that. Then I'm going to go on to something else. But 
are we maybe better off without having this treaty? I mean, it, is this treaty really useful at this point for us? So, look, that's a hard question. I mean, there, that is a really complex question to unpack. And and um, we have to be careful the United States. We walked away from two other treaties. Now, in one case, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Russians were in gross violation of it. But a second one, the Open Skies Treaty, we just kind of walked away from it because President Trump felt like walking away from something else. Not, I don't think it was based on a good, you know, mathematic, you know, scientific or technological reasoning. But on this new start, I, I'm uncomfortable walking away. I think there's value in negotiating with the Russians on this. Now, look, a, a new issue's come up that Brad and you know and I have thought about a bit, and that's that we have a third nuclear power entering this discussion, China, and and bilateral talks with Russia about this might be the wrong approach. But I don't think the right way to scrap, you know, to to get to the right approach is to scrap the existing bilateral discussions and then try to start again in some future. Um, because I, I do think there's value in that new start discussion and also in keeping Russian nuclear inventories at a manageable level. They are by far our greatest concern still should be nuclear proliferation from uh, from Russian stockpiles, which are not protected and guarded like the U.S. does. So I'm I'm uh, I'm hesitant to say New Start should go away. Hey, okay. Cliff, can I interject? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, Brad. I'll be very quick. I, I agree with Mark that, you know, this is an important treaty. Uh, you know, I, I, re- I remember in the Senate where you said, hey, we'll we'll agree to this if we can have a bipartisan consensus here in the United States that we're going to conduct a much needed and belated effort to modernize the three legs of our nuclear triad. And so away we win. And the Trump administration, it's waning months was trying to negotiate with the Russians to strengthen the New START Treaty and to address its, its really its two primary flaws from my perspective. One is that it doesn't address Russia's non-strategic nuclear weapons, as Mark knows well. And, 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 and uh, in the 2018 um, Nuclear Posture Review, you know, they highlighted the fact that Russia has roughly 2,000 non-strategic nuclear weapons. I mean, talking, you know, air-to-surface missiles, ballistic missiles, gravity bombs, far exceeding our own by maybe a factor of 10. And so um, the Trump administration was trying to negotiate with them to uh, have the treaty be revised to address that. Uh, And they're also looking at the fact, the thing that Mark hit, and that is that, you know, we were in a two-party treaty with Russia. Russia uh, uh, and and, and China was completely unencumbered by this treaty, even as as we learned later in, in the DOD's annual report on China published in November. That in 2021, the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force launched approximately 135 ballistic missiles for testing and training. That's more than the rest of the world combined. And so when the Biden administration came in, they basically brushed aside that Trump administration approach and renewed it for some of the the valid reasons that Mark highlighted, but kind of locking in these two major flaws in the program where China is not covered and we're not addressing their non-strategic nuclear weapons. So, uh, Mark, broad brushstrokes as you look at it. What's the state of the of the of the war in Ukraine today? So, um, first, it, it is a stalemate, um, but it's really and it looks like it, it's it's you know uh, frozen. It's not. This is a highly risky time, and it's a significant time for all three of us. For Russia, they're absolutely posturing themselves for an offensive. They're trying to gain leverage. And uh, Bakhmut and other areas, you know, to do this, they've reconstituted, I think, up to four armored divisions, you know, surrounding several hundred thousand mobilized new soldiers. They're they're uh, attempting to, you know, figure out how to do large scale maneuver, uh, military maneuver. Uh, but they have 
collapse the distance between their logistics and their C2 command and control with their forces, something that they struggled with at the beginning of the war. And that's going to be important for things Brad and I talk about and John and I talk about later on in terms of weapon systems for, for Russia. So that's Russia's position. They are just getting, they're on the cusp of that. For Ukraine, this is about first, you know, getting their, their own forces uh, fully, you know, getting all their units back up to fighting strength and getting that kind of boring logistics in place. The the stuff that we don't even talk much about anymore, 155 millimeter, uh, anti-armor rounds, um, you know, uh, armor, you know, wheeled and tracked vehicles so they can move rapidly. They've got to get all that stuff back in position, which means we need to provide, we and our European allies need to provide more 155 tracked vehicles, uh, anti-armor rounds, so they're ready. And then for the West, this is a big time because we this is our time to start getting them the weapons that Russia that Ukraine's going to need for a counteroffensive. And John and Brad and, and uh, others at FTD have written pretty aggressively about the need to get the tank situation correct, the need to get um, longer range artillery, and then all the boring stuff I mentioned, that's got to come from the West. So getting our European allies moving aggressively with us. So for all three major participants, this is an important one or two months leading into a Russian offensive, uh, a probable Ukrainian counteroffensive. And the the West and the U.S. being that logistical backbone that allows Ukrainian resilience to stay as strong as it does, because without that logistics from us, it would not fun- the Ukrainian army would break eventually. And you know, one of the things that has been a source of some optimism is the is, is various military analysts predicting: okay, Russia's running out of weapons, running out of running out of ammunition. Okay. Yes, they're getting um, drones from Iran. Yes, they're getting um, some ammunition from North Korea, limited. But now, and this is also new, it looks like China may may is threatening to say, okay, we can arm Russia. They did seem for a while they didn't weren't going to do that, and now Biden Biden the Biden administration saying, well, that would that would cross that would cross a red line. That's a dangerous way to put it. When you, if you if you if you establish a red line, you kind of better mean it. We have that experience. Um, give your thoughts, either of you, Brad, any any of you. Maybe start with Brad on whether the Chinese are about to enter the fray here as supporters of Russia, so that Putin doesn't fail, and what that means, and what the response would. I mean, what does it mean? What would we are we really going to sanction China in a way we haven't so far? What are we going to do? Oh, thanks, Cliff. I'm eager to hear from John on this, too. Yeah. The, I would just highlight something that, that you know and some of the listeners may be tracking, tracking, and that is that uh, China and Russia are more aligned uh, than they've been since the 1950s. And this was something that our, our intelligence community said uh, two or three years ago in its annual worldwide threat assessment to Congress. And that's not just kind of some vague, nebulous, vacuous phrase. It's a real thing. We're seeing strategic coordination between Beijing and Moscow in multiple ways. We see Beijing echoing some of Putin's talking points vis-a-vis Ukraine. We see naval and land exercises being conducted between China and Russia. Um, uh, In China, we see them conducting naval exercises where they sail together around our treaty ally, Japan. They're sharing best practices. They're integrating forces below the brigade level. This is very troubling. And, uh, and as Mark knows well from his time, uh, his distinguished time serving in the Navy, um, you know, a lot of our planning assumes implicitly or explicitly that we would take on one of these adversaries at a time. And we size and shape our forces based on that assumption. 
And increasingly, I think that's a dangerous and false assumption that we could deal with one of these adversaries at a time, given the growing strategic coordination we're seeing. And so we like to put things in neat little boxes. Hey, you know, great power competition in China happens over here in the Indo-Pacific. So we can leave the Middle East and go compete over there. Oh, wait a second. China's moving into the Middle East. Uh, oh, wait, we're going to deal with Iran here in the Middle East. Oh, wait, Iran's sending Shahid-136 drones to Russia to kill Ukrainians in their homes in Europe. So it's just it highlights yet again that these 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 neat little lines that we have in Washington, uh, where we think we can uh, keep uh, problems within those boundaries, is really a fantasy. And we have to look at the world as it is, not as we want it to be. And the fact is that Iran, China, and Russia are closer than they've been in decades in very tangible and disturbing ways. I mean, it's important to remember that that it was a, about a year ago. Just before the uh, the incursion into into Ukraine, that China and Russia actually signed a, a, a an arrangement that said their new relationship would have no limits, no limits. Now we have seen limits up to now, but the threat is that maybe those limits are going away as Xi Jinping thinks. Well, what do I want to happen, and how do I influence it? Um, Mark, you start, and then John, maybe you add some thoughts. But I want to—I do think it's a significant factor. If China decides to get more involved than it has, that would be significant. Okay, I'll go, and then John. And so, what I'd say is first that no limits partnership evidences itself in two of three uh, way, two of three lines of effort right away. The first was rhetorical diplomatic support. They absolutely, you know, helped block measures to censure Russia at the UN. Uh, they parroted. Russian lines about you know, Ukrainian war crimes and the you know the Nazification of Ukraine and the Russian justification for the war. So rhetorically, diplomatically, it was a partnership without limits. Uh, economically, they did quite a bit in, in a year where overall Ukrainian, excuse me, Chinese oil imports went down eight percent. Imports from Russia went up almost 20 percent um, in, in a year where they had a fairly neutral export import balances with most countries, their trade, their imports from Russia went up 43 percent. They kept the Russian economy in business. They made the impact of Western sanctions minimal. Now, India and a few other countries helped, but Russia did it as part of that partnership without limits. So that's the second line of effort. And the third line of effort, military, you know, we've seen small arms shipments. I think we sanctioned or listed six countries um, back about uh, last summer. But in reality, we had not seen that kind of like partnership without limits. Part of this has to do with the long-term relationship with China and Russia, who sold weapons to who, you know, who has the right supply lines for what. Uh, but I think there's opportunity for China to really support Russia, particularly in terms of uh, microchips and microelectronics that Russia needs for its cruise missile systems. But uh, I'll pass it over to John if he has any other ideas on, on how China might evidence this uh, this support, military support for Russia. Yeah, go sure. ahead, John. Sure. So just to put a finer point on what Mark said, China really is Russia's lifeline for the supply of microelectronics and other export-controlled uh, uh, sensitive products. So uh, that's both you know, direct supplies of you know, microelectronics, but other things, and also as, um, as sort of a, a zone, a jurisdiction where Russian shell companies and cutouts can uh, can import stuff from the West uh, in violation of export controls. Uh, Russian uh, imports of microchips and electronic integrated circuits from China, including Hong Kong, jumped uh, from $400 million in 2021 to over $900 million in January to September 2022. It's about a third of Russian imports of those products during that time period. Um, and so the net effect has been 
despite you know the the claims from the Biden administration and others that export controls are really crushing the Russian defense industrial base, um, the Russian imports of micro, microelectronics have actually increased uh, during that time frame. So that's what China has already done. Uh, they've already provided some some other non-lethal aid, things like body armor and helmets. And while not sexy, that stuff is important because uh, when you are mobilizing hundreds of thousands of troops, you need to be able to equip them. And, and Russia has had some struggle from that area. So if it's getting mass amounts uh, of that stuff from, from China, and I don't have really evidence to, to characterize the, the volume, but you know it, it's potentially significant. And similar uh, vein with, with the lethal aid, it really depends on what and how much uh, we've seen some evidence that Russia is having to, con- to conserve its artillery uh, uh, rate of fire. So if, if China can provide a lot of artillery ammunition, that could be significant. Even things that aren't sexy like trucks, logistical trucks, that could uh, be very significant, especially if we finally give Ukraine attack and force Russia to move its supply depots further back. Something I want to touch on really quickly, because we've got a lot of subjects I want to make sure we get through in the time we have a lot. But Mark, I know you you know a lot about this. I think you all you all do, but it, it's it's so fascinating and kind of awful. One of the ways in which Putin has waged this war is with something called the Wagner Group. And Mark, you might just say a word about why this is un- using a force like this is unusual, maybe unlawful, um, and, uh, and 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 certainly brutal. Well, certainly, I mean, they are a a second Russian army, effectively, and they are uh, they're a mixture of uh, we now no not normally, but now in Russia, they're a mixture of convicts and uh, former Russian and uh, and uh, caucus fighters that have you know that Wagner that are uh, mercenaries for hire. Uh, we've dealt with them in, in uh, West Africa. We've dealt with them in Syria. They've had some unfortunate killed a lot of them in Syria. Yeah, they've had some unfortunate run-ins with the U.S. Army in Syria and the U.S. Air Force, and uh, and uh, and they've lost uh, several hundred uh, people in in one outing. Um, But in in Ukraine, they're making a difference. The the Wagner has a good, you know, a proven World War II technique. They have the prisoners run forward, uh, get shot. That identifies where the uh, Russian, wait, excuse me, where the Ukrainian gun positions are, and then the, the Russians get to get their first shot at the Ukrainians. Um, now, look, the, it's interesting though. I look, they're a problem, but I think in the end, running two separate, uh, poorly coordinated, you know, functioning armies in the field, the traditional Russian army and the Wagner Group, is not the command and control that wins battles, right? Um, you know, this is in the end, uh, you know. Uh, Montgomery and Patton were controlled by Eisenhower. Uh, no one is controlling, you know, uh, Wagner in the in the in the Russian uh, traditional army in the same way. So I, I think that this, you know, and also to me, it's a sign of desperation. And also, they're going to run out of, uh, you know, uh, you know, severely convicted felons in the Russian penal system at some point. Uh, you know, these are this is not a long term strategy for success. In the but. It is having a very temporal significant impact, which is the Ukrainians are having to push about 500 fresh bodies into the Donbass region every day right now. They're losing several hundred people and and having several hundred wounded every day. And that has an impact on the on the Ukrainian ability to fight. And the Ukrainians are also stacking their forces up in a new and more inventive way to try to preserve some of their traditional army units. So I do think uh, Wagner's having an impact. I think it's it is uh, it's 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 more interesting than it is than it is necessarily effective. 
Right. Uh, Brad, only because I see you nodding. Yeah, no, I just Mark, Mark, Mark nailed, I think, the most significant thing there. You know, one of the things we love to talk about at West Point is principles of warfare. And one of the leading principles of warfare is unity of command. And what he's describing is a lack of unity of command between the traditional Russian forces and the Wagner group. And I think in the long term, that's a problem for them. John, what do you, what do we know about both support for Putin and opposition to Putin inside Russia? Sure. Before I move on to that, just one additional point on, on Wagner. So I, I think much like during the summer when Russia focused on Severodonetsk and Miskachansk, much more important than the territorial gains is the relative rates of attrition, right? So this remains fundamentally an attrition of war. And, and what Mark hit on about uh, relative uh, uh, casualty rates on Ukrainian and Russian sides, and more importantly, what types of personnel they're losing, I think it's, it's probably the most uh, important thing about the current uh, battle around Bakhmut. Uh, moving on to your question, uh, Cliff, um, I, I think generally support for the war has declined since uh, Putin launched mobilization. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, for understandable reasons, don't want to go fight in Ukraine. Um, many people within Russia were used to a dynamic where you know, the Russian military could do things ab- abroad, but it didn't really affect their personal lives, um, at, at least uh, uh, barring the economic side. Um, so support has dipped. That said, I think Putin probably perceives a greater threat in uh, admitting defeat than he does in continuing, continuing the war. Um, I, I don't think, there is, at least to me, there, there doesn't seem to be much of a, a threat uh, from the street to his rule, if anything, it would probably come from um, hardliners within his uh, within his coterie. We've got a, about four more issues I want to touch on the time we have remaining. I'm going to start with this one. Um, Brad, our NATO allies, how, how have they contributed? I put it this way. Have they contributed adequately to the to the collective security to this to 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 helping a fellow democracy in Europe, not a NATO member, but a fellow democracy, um, not be driven, not not be wiped off the map? It's a great question, Cliff. And, and I think it's fundamental to the um, center of gravity discussion I mentioned earlier, excuse me, in terms of American public opinion, right? It would not be unreasonable for an American to say, why should we be giving our finite resources to support Ukraine? if the Europeans who are much closer to this problem and more directly impacted are not carrying their fair share. Um, And so that's a fair question for someone in in Omaha or Portland or New York or Seattle to be asking, for sure. My answer to that is, on balance, um, I've been generally impressed with how how our European allies have responded, but you really have to go country by country. Uh, And um, I would say the Baltic countries have been uh, very forward-leaning in the foxhole for obvious reasons, because they're staring down the Russian behemoth right across their borders. I'd say Poland's been very impressive. I would say the United Kingdom's been very impressive. Uh, I would say Germany was very disappointing in the beginning in the reluctance to provide weapons. Uh, We published an op-ed criticizing them here at FDD. I'm not saying it's because of our op-ed, but then they changed course. And, you know, they're looking to provide the Leopard 2 tanks now, for example, belatedly. And that's going to be important. Um, So some disappointing behavior by the Swiss lately on some things we could talk about. But both in terms of general defense spending and how they performed, generally, I've been pleasantly surprised. And part of that, I I think, again, trying to call balls and strikes, the Biden administration deserves some credit. I think they were slow to arming Ukraine in the beginning, but they've moved heaven and earth in an admirable way after the invasion last year. And they've also worked hard to unify the NATO alliance 
encourage our NATO allies to do more. But just time and time again, we see, including with the Germans, they want to see American leadership. And when we lead, they'll often follow. And that's why I go back to my point before. If I'm Vladimir Putin, I'm targeting American public opinion, because if you undercut American support for Ukraine, a lot of these kind of fence sitting European countries will we'll follow our lead for good or bad. And so, but on, it, just my short answer to your good question is generally speaking, with some exceptions on both sides, I, I've been I'm generally impressed by the European response post-February 24th. So, Mark, you guys agree or disagree? So I, I strongly agree. And, and I'd give you know Germany in the last three months good good marks. Like like Brad said, they've gotten a lot better. Um, I think they finally figured out they're going to make a lot of money off this leopard tooth thing, right? Because uh, I mean, in the end, if we do the right thing, We'll never transfer them an Abrams, uh, a Leopard 1, or a Challenger, because none of those three tanks, including the Leopard 1, are anything like a Leopard 2. And they need to have one supply chain, uh, you know, one set of tanks. They need about 100 of them. There are 12 countries, uh, Brad and John and Ryan and others here at FTD have written on this, and, and uh, uh, Farrell Hessen, our, one of our Air Force fellows, that they, they, um, they need about 88 to 100 Leopard 2 tanks, and they need them fast. And um, there's uh, 12 countries in, in NATO and or uh, Western Europe that are participating that can provide them. Norway, Sweden, Finland, the Dutch, Portugal, Spain, Poland, Germany, just to name a few of them. They could all provide anywhere from 12 to 14 a company of Leopard tanks. If those showed up and, they, and the Ukrainians only had to train on one tank, figure out how to fix one diesel engine, have the spare parts for those diesel engines. There's a special vehicle for towing each type of tank. If you only had to one of everything, you know what I mean? A single supply chain, it would make such a difference. And the, and the Germans were slow to do it. But now I think they recognize, holy shnikey, you know, we could, we could basically be selling another 100 Leopard tanks to our European partners who've given them, or more, who've given them to our um uh, to, to the Ukrainians. So I think Europe's done a good job. I do want to, I'll, I'll name names, uh, you know, just like Brad, the Swiss, it's it's reprehensible. Not for the first time, uh, Swiss actions while being neutral to war are reprehensible. Uh, you know, the Swiss, uh, the, the Germans have given 32, and I think they're going to go up to 37, Gepard's uh, guns. These are what shoot down Shahid drones. They're fantastic. But the rounds for them, Germany over time, like many things in their defense industrial base, waned, and the Swiss started making the rounds. Now, the Swiss are refusing to allow the Germans to transfer any more rounds or or you know, procure from Switzerland and transfer those rounds. And it's gotten so bad that Germany's actually going to restart its plant up to make its own, which is going to take months. This is disgraceful. Switzerland, you know, the casualties that occur in Ukraine from the Shahid drones are, are on Swiss hands. And it's it's absolutely awful. And these guys piss me off because the Swiss, they come to us to buy our technology. We sell them F-35s. We sold them Super Hornets. You know, we help keep their defense costs down by participating in, in our efforts and our projects. And then they have the the uh, the wherewithal to say no to, to fighting Putin. You know, this is extremely unproductive behavior by a country that takes advantage of every crisis they see. All right, we've got three issues, and I want to hit them in about a minute each, literally. But I and I and and people can find out more because you've written about them. For example, what I'm going to ask you, Brad, which is that this war has, among other things, exposed enormous inadequacies in the U.S. defense industrial base. In a way, we should be grateful because who knew that we did that we don't have the wherewithal to fight the wars we pretend we can fight. And you've been writing about that. Just give us a little bit on the defense industrial base and how that ha restoring that has to be a priority. I think we all agree on that. 
Absolutely. Very quickly. Bottom line is we do not have, we as the United States of America do not have the defense industrial base that we need. There are several reasons for that. One is the Budget Control Act of 2011 and sequestration, insufficient defense budgets over time, and habitual reliance and continued resolution. So at this moment, as we're trying to conduct the most significant modernization of the U.S. military in 40 years, arm Ukraine, make Taiwan a porcupine, and make sure our posture in the Indo-Pacific is what it needs to be. We turn to our defense industrial base, and the capacity is not there. So as, as Mark Montgomery and I have written, we have a munitions capacity production crisis. We've been talking about 155 uh, artillery rounds, uh, and, and those come in both tracked and, and wheeled. Uh, uh, right now, we're talking about trying to increase our monthly production of those munitions, those 155 millimeter rounds from 14,400 a month to 90,000 a month and because we're depleting them so quickly as John talked about. So the National Defense Authorization Act, they've done important things to try to address this, but it's gonna take time. And so we're belatedly waking up on this, but it's gonna take time. Mark, less than a minute, less than a minute. What can we learn from Ukraine? and apply to a future contingency with Taiwan? Well, first thing I'd mention is what Brad and I have written about and talked about, which is that deterrence failed here. And that, and Brad discusses what's called a provocation principle, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, the fear of provoking someone and not taking action can itself leave you unprepared and, and poorly deterred. Uh, so we can learn that. But I think the bigger one is about you know, that you can build an effective counter-intervention military uh, against, an, you know, one of these, you know, authoritarian invasions, you know, um, javelins, stingers, the harpoon missiles that, 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 you know, have kept the Russian Navy at bay in the uh, Black Sea and will sink the Chinese Navy in the Straits of Taiwan if they haven't. That's the kind of procurement that the uh, that the uh, Taiwan military needs to focus on that counterintervention procurement, a recognition deterrence that did not work, and 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 uh, and and uh, and mu you must invest ahead of time to have deterrence work. That that's the first principle, and the second is build yourself a counterintervention military, and we should be directing the Taiwans on how to do that if we're going to provide them funding. Okay, final question to all three of you, John. You start. Talk about how this ends. We don't know, but give us give us your your thought, give us your quick thoughts on this. Understanding that very very often in warfare, you don't know how it ends. That's that's a convenience you just don't get, unless you unless you surrender, in which case you do know. Well, I think that's a million dollar question. You know, oftentimes throughout history, the the way the war ends is ultimately up to the loser. So whoever it is on this side, and in this case, I think you know Russia can continue fighting for a while and refuse to admit defeat. Uh, and Ukraine could do the same. Uh, but I think ultimately Ukraine's ability to fight, as Brad mentioned earlier, depends on Western resolve. And, and on that point, I think we will reach a, a critical decision point sometime late this summer or fall where we have to provide uh, an additional supplemental uh, aid bill from Congress that's going to be critical to Ukraine's ability to sustain the war. And many will be tempted to say, OK, you know, assuming Ukraine has not made substantial territorial gains by then, OK, it's a stalemate. Let's move on and end this thing. And for Putin, I think he'll say, nope, I'm going to keep grinding Ukraine down. And if they don't get that aid, then eventually perhaps they can emerge victorious. Brad, final thoughts. I don't think anyone knows for sure when this is going or how it's going to end. I don't see Putin backing down. I don't see the Ukrainians saying, OK, you can have the Donbass and Crimea. So it's going to be resolved on the battlefield. The Ukrainians are continuing to be brave. 
I think it's going to be a, a race of defense production uh, and, and whether we will have the will to continue that production. Who can produce weapons quicker and get into the fighting forces? Ukrainian morale is higher than Russian morale. Uh, I think it's going to come down to can Russia produce weapons? Can Europe produce weapons? Does China come into the mix? Does Iran provide short range ballistic missiles? Those are some of the things I'm going to be watching going forward. Mark, last thoughts. So at this point, I don't, you know, of the three major combatants, U.S., Russia, and uh, Ukraine, I don't see Ukraine breaking. So it's going to come down to um, either the U.S., when, as John says, when the $50 billion bill comes due between September and October, uh, the U.S. backs off doing it. I, as Brad has said, the Europeans will, uh, will collapse pretty quickly uh, alongside us. Or um, if we do continue the support, I think it eventually is – uh, Vladimir Putin gets, you know, the proverbial bullet in the back of the head. You know, he's either going to be re- removed from office alive or dead. I mean, those are to me are the two options. We collapse or he is removed. So those are the to me. It will not be Ukraine breaking of its own accord. Mark and John and Brad, thank you for the work you've been doing, are doing, will do. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this conversation. Glad to have you today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.